Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is Front Row, and I'm your host, James Whiteside, principal dancer and choreographer with American Ballet Theater and the author of Center Center. Take a seat in the front row as I discuss the creative process and the business of creativity with the world's brightest stars. Christopher Wielden is a world-renowned choreographer of contemporary ballet. He was appointed an Officer of the Order of the British Empire in 2016 for promoting the interests and reputation of British classical and theatrical dance worldwide. Christopher is the winner of not one, but two Tony Awards for Best Choreography for the Broadway shows in American in Paris and MJ the Musical. Other notable works include the ballets Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Polyphonia, The Winter's Tale, and many more. He is also the recipient of an Olivier Award. This episode is fantastic, if I do say so myself. Chris is open and honest and, frankly, very easy to talk to. I'm a huge fan of his work, and we chat about much of it in this episode. From his time as a dancer, then as a ballet choreographer, and now as a Broadway director and choreographer. I ask him some pretty tough questions about his newest show, MJ the Musical, so take a seat and hang out for a bit in the front row. Welcome to Front Row, Chris. How are you doing? I'm very well, James. Thank you for having me. So I'm calling you Chris, but everybody knows you as Christopher Wielded. Do you mind that I call you Chris? No, please. I would so I'm usually Christopher when I'm in trouble or or at work, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, officially you're Christopher Wielden, but you know, I feel like we have so many mutual friends and we're in the same community in the dance world. So whenever I hear someone mention you, you're just Chris. It's like Cher and Chris. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Just like Cher. <laughs> <laughs> we can always aspire to be like Cher. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's jump right into this interview. I've got some really fun questions for you, at least in my opinion. I'll let you be the judge. But um, you've made an extraordinary life for yourself as a choreographer of contemporary ballet and now theater. Tell me about your first big break in choreography. So my first big break was actually when I was eight years old. Um, and my ballet teacher, she used to set us little kind of exercises on Saturday mornings. I always look forward to Saturday class because uh, I knew that we would get to, you know, be creative at the end. And so we all split off into groups and I made this little piece. It was like a, it was like a prequel to Swan Lake. Hmm. So it was like the, it was the swans hatching out of the eggs. So my little piece got chosen to be a part of like a little education event that we were doing, going off to a couple of primary schools in the UK and showing non-ballet kids what ballet is all about. Um, so that was my debut as a choreographer. <laughs> wow, that's so, that's quite adorable, actually. I had a similar thing in my school in Connecticut, in which uh, we were each allowed to take a cassette tape home. And, uh, you know, like a couple of days later, we had to come in and bring a piece of choreography that we had made. And I found some Chopin nocturne that I, sorry, a lot of outdoor noise. So what I was saying, the, <laughs> I selected this <laughs> Chopin nocturne in which I created a piece about a vampire. It was some sort of like Nosferatu adjacent thing where I was like bat flapping around. And I thought myself a genius at the time. And I was probably nine years old. And <laughs> surprisingly enough, my piece was not selected <laughs> to be in the lecture demonstration. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. Um, so that was your first big, you know, childhood break. Can you tell me about your big first professional break 
Yeah, so my big professional break was with um, was actually with the New York City Ballet. Um, I'd been uh, I'd been asked to. Well, actually, I was very forward when I when I moved from from the Royal Ballet to join City Ballet. I was very forward about my choreographic aspirations, and I kind of, as you did in those days, plunk, like plunked down a huge pile of VHS cassettes on mm. Peter Martin's desk, uh, the then director of New York City Ballet, and said, "Oh, oh, and by the way, I choreograph." Um, sort of expecting him to wade his way through these this sort of vast collection of like school pieces and you mm. know bits, um, and he, either he either he did that and was excited by me potentially, or he just you know just to to get me off his back, <laughs> he <laughs> decided to let me have a have a shot at, at uh, choreographing for the School of American Ballet. Um, studio workshop that they had. And then I graduated to the Juilliard workshop, to the yearly workshop. Yeah. And then from there was asked to do a piece for the New York City Ballet. So the New York City Ballet was my first big professional gig on a main stage. Okay, what did you make for the School of American Ballet, which is New York City Ballet's school? Yeah, so I made two, I made three pieces, actually. I made a piece called Le Voyage, which mm-hmm. um, back then starred... Um, Benjamin Millipier in his final year at school and Maria Kurowski in her final year at school and wow. Liang in his final year at school. Cool. All who have gone on to make big names for themselves in the ballet world. And then I made a piece called uh, Dance Bohemienne, which was the Juilliard, uh, the School of American Ballet workshop at, at the Juilliard Theatre. Uh, and then the third piece I made was called Soiree Musicale. Um, so yeah, so three pieces for the school and then, you know, launched onto the big stage. You really love a French title, don't you? I do, or I did <laughs> back then. <laughs> so uh, Polyphonia, I believe, was your first work for New York City Ballet. Am I correct? Yes, not a French title. Um, not a French title. <laughs> do you remember Polyphonic Ringtones? I do. When I heard the the title of your ballet, which we were learning when I danced for Boston Ballet. because uh, uh, You know... Miko Nissen and the director there brought the piece because it's a at this point it's a very very famous ballet. Uh, it must be very, I don't know. It must feel good to have your first work for a major ballet company be so ubiquitous in the world of ballet. That uh, must feel really good. Yeah, it it was actually my my third for City Ballet. Um, but yes, uh, and really probably the first ballet that I made that that um, that that uh, that kind of garnered the attention of um critics and other directors and mm. I, I think it was it was um it was probably if you would call it you know a breakout piece it was that was probably the one so if that was your third what were your first two for new york city ballet uh so the first one was called slavonic dances which was uh to the some of the slavonic dances by dvorak mm. um had, i'd grown up loving Dvorak's music. Um, my my dad was a big fan, and we went to see a few concerts. And so, so that was my my first work, and it was for Jock Soto, who was the, it, back then um, my my boyfriend and uh, a wonderful dancer who was in the company when I joined, called Monique Manier. And it was a collection of dances, folky folk inspired dances. And then the second one was called Mercurial Maneuvers, mm-hmm. which um, was also Jock and Miranda Weiss and was much more kind of explorative of the, um, of the of corps de ballet work. Hmm. So how did the critics respond to those first two works with, when compared with Polyphonia that, that sort of served as a breakout moment for you? Yeah, I mean... Back then, when I still cared what they said, <laughs> both Slavonic dances I remember was was kind of like there was some there was some, it was they were they were critical, but they were also like okay, well here's here's a here's a kid with talent, uh, mm. somebody to watch out for, um, not there yet, kind of diamond in the rough. Um, mm. that, that was sort of that was sort of the the feeling, and then Mercurial maneuvers actually got got really quite good reviews. Um, uh, uh, again, sort of like pointing out, I suppose, pointing out the flaws in the piece, but also um, celebrating, you know, my adventures in corps de ballet work. Yeah. Uh, and then, it, but it was Polyphonia that I think made everyone sit up. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I think 
uh, this might be slightly controversial, but I think the New York Times critics of that era, um, they liked to dip a toe in as opposed to go all in regarding supporting somebody. Yeah. And there are a few exceptions, and mainly they're about dancers, not so much choreographers. But when a new choreographer comes on the scene, it's like they they dip a toe in the support pond. And then, you know, when they really exhibit some real gusto, they throw all their weight behind that person and they're like, we knew them when, you know, it's sort of <laughs> that sort of thing. Which, you know. It's nice because it existed, and I don't think it exists in the same way now. I think dance criticism has completely sort of vanished, with the exception of like two writers. Yeah, I mean, I think it. You know, I I think it was no question. It was it was a it was a different era, and certainly we were living perhaps in a slightly less sensationalist moment. Hmm. I certainly felt very supported back then criticized yes but also encouraged um mm. and and uh the kind of criticism that was uh for a young man um with a fairly fairly large ego um and 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 some some sizable insecurities to go with that um <laughs> i think i think it was hard for me to to perhaps process the criticism, and I remember thinking back at the time, like, well, why can't they just say it's all good? Um, but, mm. <laughs> but now I'm actually extremely grateful for that because there mm. was there was balance. It felt um, it did feel like real criticism. Yeah, I mean, I feel similarly about my own criticism as a dancer. Uh, I felt very supported by the critics at the New York Times, and. You know, for a person like I joined American Ballet Theater as a person coming from another company, having been a principal with Boston Ballet. And there was a lot of sort of, I don't know, I feel I felt like I had a lot to prove coming in as an outsider, as a soloist, you know, like that position could have been filled by other people. So when the Times sort of puts their stamp of approval on on you, like that does mean something in, in the eyes of the very small dance community. Uh, and it's kind of nice, frankly. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And, and it's, and it's important because, you know, even, even today it's sort of, um, I think people do look to the times as a, um, as sort of a, as, as a, as a, as a benchmark, you know, um, yeah. it's very different in the UK because of course we have a lot of, of newspapers. And so there are, so the, so the criticism that's coming at you tends to be, uh, perhaps a, just a little bit more balanced. I mean, it's very rare that I'll make a ballet in London and you'll get like seven raves. Um, mm. When it happens, it's great, and you know it has happened. Yeah. But but even then, there's always just there 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 are always going to be the dissenting voices. It's a little different in this country because this, you know, okay, yes, the Washington Post. I happen to really respect Sarah Kaufman. I think she's an excellent critic. Again, tough but also balanced. Uh, and I've never minded that. I've never minded the toughness and have had my work scrutinized by, you know, the likes of Clement Crisp in the UK, who mm -hmm. <laughs> who could be so, so mean, but so witty and clever that you um, you almost had to laugh and cry at the same time. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but but yeah, it's 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 different in this country because The New York Times is is the paper. Yeah. So you're not you're not getting that kind of. Um, that, that balance of different opinions. Is there less interest in ballet and dance in the United States than in the UK? I mean, I think that because of the large number of newspapers and the amount of coverage there is in the UK, perhaps you could say that there is more, there are more people out there who are being exposed perhaps to, to writings about dance, although the criticism uh, the columns tend to be getting shorter and shorter in in the papers mm. in the UK. Um, I don't I don't know that I would say that there is um, there's, that there is less interest here. But we're also a much much smaller country, and we have you know we have between the Royal Ballet, the English National Ballet, the Birmingham Royal Ballet, Northern Ballet Theatre, uh, Rombert Dance Company. You know we have a lot of companies for a very very small island. Um, and a lot of those companies also tour. So I think there's just, it's just perhaps a little bit more available in the UK. 
Yeah, I hear that. I think the the size of the United States has a detrimental effect on ballet, and it becomes quite regional. Well, it's uh, here's the thing. Also, the now the local papers, the smaller newspapers, are are sort of dropping their dance criticism altogether. Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess unless you're a subscriber or you're lucky enough to take to be taken along by a friend first time to the ballet then being yeah having that having that first time exposure perhaps is is um is becoming uh a a little bit more few and far between Mm. i think it's so interesting how the cultural importance of ballet is waning yet we have huge stars like misty copeland like completely a household name it's so confusing to me yeah no it's it's very true and we haven't seemed to manage to sort of bridge the gap between popular entertainment and and our art form which is you know often considered kind of classical and um highbrow Mm -hmm. and to some elitist um i i've been sort of trying to to do that as much as I can with my work um, by, you know, finding titles that I, I think perhaps will appeal to a sort of a larger, a larger audience and not being afraid to kind of dive into that a little bit um, when making work. Cause I do believe that um, you, if you can get, if you can get people through the door and you can encourage them to come see uh, a work that is offering them something theatrical and dynamic and exciting um, that they can understand a story perhaps that they know that they can connect to. Um, and then they fall in love with that, no matter how you feel about that, that production personally, then they, then they may well come back. That's how I see it anyway. I always think, well, great. If they, if they'll, if they come to Alice in Wonderland and, and they love Alice then they'll come back perhaps and see a triple bill program with, you know, with perhaps one of my new works or, you know, or, or a McGregor or an Ashton triple bill or a Macmillan triple bill, you know, there's the, the, it's just, I think about sort of, you know, opening the door to people really getting them in. Yes, I agree. I agree completely. And I think from a theater standpoint, I think theaters can do a better job of examining the metrics essentially of who is attending the ballet, how many times they're attending the ballet, what um, the demographics are for which ballets. I don't think people are compiling the data well enough to know what is working, how many people who come see Alice in Wonderland come to see Onegin or Giselle. And I think uh, as we move forward in this very data-heavy kind of universe that we live in, I think we can learn a lot from what works and and what doesn't from just the data. Yeah, it's you know it always is interesting working on Broadway and and because they do that all the time, of course, because it's it is very much a money making endeavor. Broadway is a business, and so uh, producers are working hard from the beginning to discover all of that. Who's coming? How do we reach out to more people like those people? And how do we reach their friends? And how do we do it through social media and um, um, so I feel like, I feel that, like that collection of data certainly happens more, you know, when, uh, when working on a, on a new musical. Chris, can you tell me about when you decided to hang up your dancing shoes, why you decided to retire and focus on choreography? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because it started to become a struggle kind of in my mid twenties as my choreographic career was taking off. I was having to turned down some pretty exciting gigs uh, because of my dance commitment to the New York City Ballet as a dancer. And, you know, I remember w- right after my first ballet premiered, Peter Peter Martin saying to me, um, well, it's going to be very hard to balance the two, you know. And, um, <laughs> and I, I remember thinking, no, it's not. It's going to be fine. I'll be fine. And still had a, a great de- deal of aspiration to, you know, to become a principal dancer with City Ballet. And then as, you know, the years passed, it, I realized he was he was right. And the being pulled in sort of two different directions, I felt like I wasn't really doing either very well. So, um, mm. and but the trigger, funnily enough, was being called to learn the Cavalier in the Nutcracker for the seventh year in a row without actually yet having performed it. And I was like, Oh wow. You know what? 
I don't want to do this this year. <laughs> In fact, I don't want to <laughs> do it ever again. <laughs> so it was kind of, it was mm. just a, it was a wake up call and it was like, okay, listen, you haven't danced it yet. You're 28 years old. Um, I might've been 27 when I made the decision, but I was 28 when I left. Um, and you know, do you really want to be that soloist that, you know, gets thrown at the bone of like one performance of Cavalier in the Nutcracker when you're like 35, because you've, you know, it's like the, it's like the Rolex gold watch. <laughs> Not really. I would much rather have the Rolex gold watch. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, uh, yeah. Do you have any, do you have any regrets about ending your dancing career so early? I, I was really excited to, I, I think I didn't realize how stressful it had become for me and how, how down on myself I was and how depressed actually mm. I was about my dancing. It was unlike me, but to sort of towards the end, I was definitely feeling like I just didn't, I didn't want to be in class. I didn't feel like rehearsing. Um, and you know what the reps like at the New York city ballet, it's constantly changing over. So it's not like we were just stuck in a rut doing a, you know, a run of Giselle's or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So when I made the decision, it was really like the clouds parted and the sun came out. And I was just excited about experiencing life as a normal human being for a while. Because um, mm. back then it felt like we were less allowed to be accepted as normal human beings. Like now I feel like there's a bit more balance in life. Um, dancers are, you know, they're getting educated as they as they're, as they're training and as they're dancing and, you know, there's a bit more of a focus on mental health and, and that sort of moment of integrating into life when you stop dancing, it sounds like we're on the moon, doesn't it? Like we're <laughs> in our careers. We're no, it does. It does. I mean, we are in a way, I think we're incredibly stunted in a lot of ways. I think we're provided for from a very young age because we have yeah. gifts which is very beautiful that people want to foster our gifts, but it also sets us up for a really, really harsh reality slash wake up call upon retirement. And I think uh, I'm really respectful of people who manage to go to school and get degrees during their professional dancing career. Like Katie Williams, who's a soloist at American Ballet Theater. She just got her master's in psychology, I believe from like Princeton or something insane. And I'm just, I, I can't believe, I can't believe it. It is so inspiring to me. Slash, I will not be doing that. <laughs> um, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so, so for me, yeah, it just felt, it did feel like a breath of fresh air. And I was happy to get up in the morning and have a cup of coffee and read the paper rather than rush off to class. Mm. The, I, no regrets, but every now and then I'll have like a little flush of, um, of missing it. Like I'll see a great performance mm. and, and try to put myself back in that space and that wonderful, unique place when you're, when you're totally lost in a role and the world goes away and everything that is bothering you life goes away and the focus just becomes about existing in that world of music and, um, it, you know, it's, it's very unique and I feel very lucky to have had that experience. And so that's a place I go to sometimes yeah. and it, it's usually when I've seen or while I'm watching a really fantastic performance. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's the best distraction really. I mean, going to work, rehearsing, performing, no matter what's going on, you can focus on one thing and that's not falling over in front of 5,000 people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, I did spend a lot of my my life at City Ballet wor worrying about whether I was on the right foot or whether it was the right count because we were we were thrown into <laughs> yeah, ballet yeah. so fast. Stravinsky, what have you? Yeah, you don't want to be thrown into Agon and no, not know what you're doing. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> oh gosh. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, Morphosis, which is the company you founded, and it was sort of like a, a touring company between London and New York and other places, and you featured a lot of new work and other choreographers. What was your decision in starting that? Why? Well, first of all, thank you for pronouncing it correctly. A lot of people say morphesis, which is really not what we what my, <laughs> the intention was for the company. Uh, <laughs> Less feces, please. Um, 
I I was just excited having sort of left this experience as a dancer, um, grateful and um, certainly enriched by many of the experiences I had at City Ballet, but also eager to mm. um, in some way kind of figure out a way to cur- curate uh, an experience for dancers. So I have a small mm-hmm. number of dancers, a group that I knew would excite me um, as a choreographer. Um, and, and, and then, you know, build a repertoire that would, was not just my work, but would, that, but that would be brought in specifically for that group. Um, whether I got to keep them for a couple of seasons or whether it was just sort of, it ended up kind of being a season by season situation just because we weren't ever able to, to raise enough money to be able to pay people full time. Um, note to self, mm-hmm. don't try and start uh, an, uh, an internationally multinational ballet company during a financial crisis. It's not a good idea. It's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those years, like 2008 to whatever, I feel, I mean, half my friends got fired from Boston Ballet. It, it was just a major crunch across I mean, the arts really just got hammered as they did during COVID and as they continue to do every time there's a little hiccup in society. Let's call COVID a hiccup. <laughs> uh, oh, no. So so anyway, it, yeah, it became about um, building a, an environment that was, that was um, conducive to creativity and also, you know, a healthy, fun place for dancers to work. Um, yeah. And it was great. And we did some fantastic work and we had some amazing people come in like Bill Forsyth came in and um, Lightfoot Leon came mm-hmm. in, Ratmansky came in, I made work. Um, we did some, you know, some little oddities here and there. We did some wonderful little sort of chamber pieces by Ashton. And, you know, I probably made three or four new works um, and some little pieces as well, part of dozen things. And we toured to Paris and we went to the Sydney Festival. I mean, we had, it was really a ball. And I think if you, if you go back and speak to any, any of the dancers that were around at that time, I hope that they would, they would agree that it was, it was, it was a good time. And I did feel like I achieved what I set out to achieve. The only thing that I, I, when I look back on it now, I, I just wish I had been more, um, realistic about my gifts as a fundraiser. I realized that that's just not mm-hmm. something I'm good at. And I, it is a gift, you know, to be a, to, to be that kind of director who is development savvy, um, and is willing to sit down and, you know, and exude the, the charm and, um, be happy sort of talking, talking people yeah. into supporting, their work and you had no one helping you with that no i mean listen it's hard to find really good people in development especially for a small company because there are very few kind of development arts develop development stars and the big organizations snapped them up and we discovered that you know we were waiting Uh. to find the right person and by the time we realized that or i realized that you know three years in time's up for me um we were still i was still expected to do some of that work um, and I just, yeah. you know, James, honestly, I just wasn't very good at it. Yeah. I'm not good at it either, frankly. And, um, you know, I've thought of different ideas about creating little sort of one-off shows here and there. And uh, my passion does not lie in development, <laughs> let me tell you. So if ever I was to do something similar, like try and make a traveling show or something, I would definitely outsource the development. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's important and sort of gone are the days, unfortunately, particularly in this country, but even now in some of the European countries mm. too. Um, and in the UK, I can't call that a European country anymore, unfortunately. Mm. Well, I suppose I can, I just can't call it a member of the European Union. Um, but let's not have that conversation right now. <laughs> the- <laughs> I'm not the person to have that convo with. But the, yeah, it's, it's, it's becoming that way too that the sort of old fashioned artistic artistic director doesn't really exist. And any artistic director, even with a brilliant development team is expected to be a part of that process. And of course I would, I would be happy Mm -hmm. to do that. Um, But we just didn't have the, you know, the infrastructure. I want what was once, you know, the model 
in the 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever, where you just have one benefactor where like, you know, Maplethorpe had sponsors that provided him with a place to work, place to live and a stipend to create art. And I, where's my, yeah, where's my, uh, you know, sponsor. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, listen. I mean, Balanchine certainly had had that in 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 Kirst in the in Kirsten, in Kirsten, yeah. yeah. I I think there are so many organisations now. That there's there's so much sort of pull and demand on on you know the the people in in these big cities that have the wealth that can yeah. that can uh, that can support. It's got to be out there, though. I, 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 I want that for you. I wish that for you. I wish that for you, too. <laughs> I do. I, I know. Well, you. I, I'd like to talk about Broadway, actually. So yeah, sure. um, I'm going to go back to full-length works in ballet, like Alice, Alice in Wonderland, and most recently, like Water for Chocolate. So I'm going to put that on, on pause for a moment and talk about Broadway. Okay. So uh, your first work for Broadway, am I correct in thinking, was... An American in Paris. My first work on Broadway was working as choreographer on a musical called The Sweet Smell of Success back in 2001. Wow. And that was a new Marvin Hamlish musical starring John Lithgow and the then fairly undiscovered Kelly O'Hara. And I was, yeah, I was the choreographer for that. So that was my first time. And then my second time was... Gosh, 16 years later on An American in Paris. So how did that come about? Um, I was, you know, the the property um, was sort of flying around a little bit between um, several producers. And uh, one of the producers ended up managing to secure the rights Mm -hmm. and decided to team up with a, with a, um, a colleague of his in Paris, the director of the, of the Théâtre du Châtelet Mm -hmm. and put this production on. It had never been done on stage before. I think a lot of people assumed that it must've been because it's a classic musical that had only been a, a movie. And they approached me because they wanted sort of in this, in this, the spirit of old Broadway, they wanted a, director choreographer vision not you know two separate uh, first i said no because i'd never directed actors and i was like who am i to even pretend to know how to begin to do that uh, b- uh, but in our search for a director we realized that actually or i realized that actually uh it probably was going to be something that you know if i could if i could learn along the way if i could learn on the job it was was probably going to be more appropriate for this for this piece you were nominated for a tony on directing correct for directing i was so you know what what an endorsement yeah you know honestly because it was some of those were some of the most uncomfortable uh days i've ever spent in the studio at first because i really i knew nothing there's you know let me tell you um directing for dummies doesn't exist yeah Um, and i certainly felt like a dummy (laughs) so what were some of the challenges I think just actors work in a very different way from from dancers. You know, dancers are very immediate. They often don't have a voice in the room. Mm. Yeah, I actually love dancers who who I can who I can have a, an artistic conversation with when I'm mm-hmm. creating. You know, usually, that's when my work comes out the best. But um, but for the most part, you know, dancers are very obedient, and we, as we know, we wait to be given choreography. And um, I, and I've never been the sort of choreographer that that asks dancers to improv um, mm-hmm. sort of have always felt like it just, that's just not the way I work that it comes, comes through my body. So, so I knew how to, I know how to work with dancers. I just didn't know how to work with actors. I don't have when an actor's struggling with a line. Um, I don't necessarily have the training or I, I can't suggest an exercise or it's just not, that's not. Yeah. My, so I spent the first actually, you know what, pretty much most of the process until we opened, feeling like a complete fraud mm. and sweating. And everyone was very patient with me. There were a couple of actors who were just like, yeah, you have no idea what you're doing. And they never said it, but they kind of made me feel that way. Um, but but I, but I have to say, you know, you know, once you know, once a show gets no- nominated for Tonys and you get nominated for Best Director, people change their tune very quickly. Mm-hmm. And... And I realized actually 
along the way that directing is very unique to each individual. And as long as you are striving for truth in the moment and you know what your story is and you're clear on your vision and you're working with really good actors, you can, you can get there. And so I figured out that, you know, yes, it would be good to know all of the techniques and, mm-hmm. you know, I've started to sort of learn a little bit of that as I, as I go along, but actually in the, at the end of the day, you, you're, it's the same goal that I have when I'm creating a story ballet. You know, yeah. What is the, what is the language uh, that is going to communicate this emotional moment most truthfully? And it's a bit, sorry, it's a bit like yeah. personality management mixed with artistic integrity. Yes. It's a lot of personality management. Yes. And, and, and the integrity, but because also I think, you know, act, actors all, all work very differently. Some actors uh-huh. need a lot or want a lot. Don't, they don't necessarily need, need a lot. Some actors need a lot. You know, if you're working with an actor who, um, you know, like someone like Miles Frost, who had very little experience before he joined the, the cast of MJ, mm. um, he went from about a year ago sitting in his mom's office room in Washington, D.C., getting a Zoom call from me to say, we've just cast you as Michael Jackson on Broadway with zero experience to, Mm. you know, just winning a Tony. Um, So, uh, but then if you're working with someone like Lithgow um, or, you know, any experienced actor, they may not need a lot from you or want a lot from you. It's just, it's so it's about figuring out how the individual works. And when you've got many um, that that is quite a lot of personality management. <laughs> yeah, but I, I would imagine even without proper, you know, training in directing actors, like you can tell when someone is delivering a line or a scene, and it's not quite working. What do you do? How do you manage that situation? You can tell. Say, say it's Lithgow, and you're like, something's not working. I don't know what it is. How do you work with them through it? I try not to be too hard on myself because there you always kind of jump to the or I do anyway the oh oh god it's me um it's something that I've done maybe it's the blocking or mm. sometimes it is the blocking um or the intention but honestly I think I've learned not to try and have the answer right then and there and that it's sometimes it's better just to step away and for them to think and for me to think and for us to come back together yeah. and to reassess Um, it was very uncomfortable initially because I felt like I had to have the answer to everything. And of course I didn't have any answer to anything. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to know what directing Broadway has taught you about making new work in classical ballet. Gosh, that's such a good question. I think it's, I think it made me, because after American in Paris, I went straight into um, creating uh, Winter's Tale for the Royal Ballet, and mm. I approached the, the creation of the of Winter's Tale much. It was much more sort of text based. Like I was like, okay, not only how can I tell the story that Shakespeare has written, um, and he because he writes, you know, as we all know, really great stories. Um, <laughs> But how can how is it possible then to make the text come alive through the body somehow, mm. so that it's not just a storyline that you are capturing some of that poetry, um, lifting that from the page and and somehow, you know, um, uh, processing that through through movement. And what's a good example of that? There's a for not. I'm going to probably get the line wrong because it's been a while. It's I think it's something like I have seen and drunk the spider, and and this was more of kind of a choreographic clue. And talking when talking, it's in one of Leontes's um, speeches in Winter's Tale when he's when he's describing the feeling of jealousy, mm. and just that the image of of him actually swallowing a live spider and kind of how that would feel was a clue as to sort of how, how to then find a way to communicate that through movement. And so yeah. there's a lot, there are a lot of moments where, you know, there's a sort of pit in Leontes's first solo in the piece, there's a like, kind of a piercing 
uh, motif where it's almost like something's being threaded through, through, um, you know, his body. And then from that, you know, the hand starts to almost take on spy- a spider-like quality. And then that mm. hand takes control of, of the rest of the body. So I, I guess that's probably the, the clearest. Um, but, but, but also knowing, understanding the rhythm of the text and also just being really familiar with it um, and hoping then that, that that also in some ways uh, then transmits into, you know, into the, into the choreography itself. Yeah. It's so fascinating to examine works that have already been made that are really dramatic works where, you know, they're based at like Macmillan's Romeo and Juliet, which is um, like an actor's ballet really. Yeah. And uh, you know, you can really feel the text through the movement. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting thing for me to inspect. Um, I want to go back to MJ, the musical and talk a little bit about that, uh, which you won a Tony award for best choreography and when you were nominated for best director again, right? I was. Yeah. 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 Gosh, you're going to get that director, Tony. I believe it. <laughs> Listen, every time I get nominated, I'm just like, Wow. I never in a million years did I ever imagine that I would be nominated as best director for, for anything, actually, quite honestly. So that's, that's really cool. Really, really cool. Yeah, that's amazing. I don't know if you know this, but Michael Jackson is a highly controversial figure in, in society. No. Uh, how did you deal with pushback regarding the subject matter of the musical? And what sort of pushback was there? You know, there was quite a lot of pushback. There was quite a lot of pushback, more so, I think, when we were developing the show, perhaps than when uh, once we opened. There was quite a lot of pushback from from critics, which was understandable. But for the most part, the response to the show has been very, very positive, especially from the public. The public mm. are seem to be very connected and loving it. And so that's really exciting. I think the pushback was was understandable. I think we were all very nervous and even wondering ourselves whether after the release of the documentary, whether this was a story that we should be continuing to develop. Mm. But I think, you know, Lynn and I always had the intention to focus the work, focus the piece around Michael's art. And the music is never going away. I hear Michael's music well, of course, I hear it daily at the Neil Simon Theatre, but I hear Michael's music um, everywhere I go, you know, blaring out of car stereos down the street, going into the coffee shop. I ate at a restaurant yesterday. They were obviously playing Michael's greatest hits because it was just one song after another. The art is not going anywhere. And so then I suppose our show becomes about a little bit about the conversation of so how do you how do you address that? How do you deal with that? It was it was complex because we wanted to, of course, thread the needle and acknowledge the complexities around uh, Michael's career. But again, we we focused the show very much on his creative process and also just the kind of wild tapestry-like imagination um, and, and sort of communicating that his his you know his visual sense, his of course his 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 choreography. Um, his love for um, what he called his short films, which we now call music videos, but he he liked to call mm-hmm. them short films, and they were in fact short films. They all had stories. They had they were the first music videos to have real production value and and feel like um, feel feel like you were seeing you know a movie. Um, so so yes, there was pushback. I had a lot of people tell me, "Don't do it! Don't do it!" Uh, you know, career suicide, uh, toxic. Um, but there was something, you know, uh, very, very exciting to me about working with Lynn Nottage. I felt safe with Lynn um, because Lynn is not af- afraid of of um, of complexity in her writing. Um, and I learned a great deal about leaning into fear and rechanneling what you know rechanneling those 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 fearful feelings and and focusing them you know in a more creative way um and i'm not gonna lie it's not been easy but it's incredibly rewarding to go to neil simon 
you know, sometimes if I've had a really bad day, I'll go at 10 to 10 and feel the love that the audience have for Michael's music, you know, in the, and not just in the last 10 minutes of the show throughout. Um, mm. But it's, you know, he, he was one of those artists that love, love him or hate him. Um, in some way, his art kind of connects, connects all of us. And we all have, you know, we all have, um, uh, have moments of Michael Jackson and Michael Jackson's music in, you know, in our lives. Yeah. I think it's, it's a great metaphor for the complexity of being a human. You know, I, I, I can't imagine the feelings that you must have had in creating this. And I, frankly, I don't know what I would have done in your position. It's really confusing and life can be really, really confusing. And I still haven't really formed an opinion on whether or not it should exist or not. And that being said, I'm incredibly happy for your success in this show and that it has become such an audience favorite. Um, but it is really complex and it gives me pause and it makes me feel, I don't know, I get a sort of like pit in my stomach when I think about the allegations, the implications, the ramifications. And then I think about what his music has meant to me personally as a, as a human being living in the world, as well as a dancer. You know, in every jazz class I took when I was a kid, it was Michael Jackson. It was every day, you know what I mean? And it played a huge, a huge part in my, in my life as a creative person. I made up so many living room dances to Michael Jackson's music. And, and it's just confusing. I just don't know how to shut out the love for the music and just take on the allegations you know I, I don't have the power i don't think yeah well listen that's a very honest um and vulnerable response and uh, and i don't think we're, we're, by making the show we're not asking anyone to do that you know we're not yeah we're not um we're not asking we're actually we actually hope and it was always our intention to leave space for people to feel both and to come mm -hmm. in and perhaps perhaps through the storytelling, perhaps through what Lynn's written, um, understand a little bit more about why Michael the, was the way he was in this particular moment mm. in time, because it's set at a, mm. a, at a very specific time. Um, but also, you know, leave, leave room for people to have their own complicated feelings about him and maybe at the show feel a little differently. Either, you know, it, mm. and some people feel, I'm sure, feel um, perhaps even more conflicted but also that maybe that there is a, some healing in art and you know the i can't help but you know feel first of all very proud but also um just acknowledge the fact that there are an insane number of really really talented young actors singers dancers up there on that stage um, who are making their Broadway debuts, even just for them, even to see the show just for, for them and understanding, you know, that they are completely separate from Michael's, <laughs> Michael's mm -hmm. legacy. And then, you know, there are just many, many people in the world who just flat out don't believe it. And we had some, mm -hmm. we had a lot of complicated conversations with the cast because there are quite a few people in the cast who, you know, who, who don't believe the allegations either choose not to, or, you know, just, just really don't. So I think what I'm saying is we're, we're not asking anyone to, um, to kind of check their complex feelings at the door, Yeah, but it, it's certainly a show that, that will, I hope continue the conversation around, you know, how we hold, how we hold great artists and sometimes the, the difficult things that artists uh, have done um, in their lives and, uh, and yeah, and, and focus perhaps a little bit more on the art and, and the, the power of healing through art. Yeah. Changes Facebook status to it's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> so let me ask you this now, seeing as you were, you know, so, so candid and open about your feelings about the show. Um, will you go see it? I will. I will. I'm putting you on the spot here. <laughs> no, I will. I want to go see it. I, 
I've heard wonderful things about the show. I will go see it. I am I am not so high on my horse that I don't want to see it. And I don't believe myself to be a person on any sort of high horse. I've never pretended that I was the best person in the room. Uh morally, ethically, whatever. I I am a person. I I am complicated as well. And I think if you really inspected me as a person, you'd find all sorts of confusing and, you know, (laughs) dejected things perhaps. But yes, I'd like to go see the show. I'd like to to feel my feelings and I'd like to talk about it. Yeah. Well, I I hope you will. And when you do, um, talk to me about you. I mean, we don't have to do it on, on the podcast, but so I'd certainly love to hear you know, how, how the show makes you feel, what, you know, what your thoughts are afterwards. And, um, uh, yeah, be great. Chris, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate your candor and the time. It's just been wonderful. Thanks James. It's been, it's been really fun chatting with you too. Where can I, uh, direct my listeners to follow your work? Well, I do have a website, which I sort of keep up fairly, fairly well updated. It's just www.christopherwielden.com. And yeah, I guess there's a big old Broadway show happening right now. So if you, if you like the music of Michael Jackson, um, you could, could go see that. And then, um, and then of course, I'm super excited about like Water for Chocolate at ABT next season. It uh, was a, an incredible experience creating that work. And I'm just so thrilled to be back at ABT. It's been a while. And um, so, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that will be coming up next spring. So just, I wanted to ask more about like Water for Chocolate, but we've run out of time here. Like Water for Chocolate is an adaptation of the novel by, gosh, um, Laura Esquivel. What is her name yeah. again? Esquivel. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Uh, and ABT will be doing the New York premiere in the spring of 2023, I believe. That's correct. And yeah. uh, you know, maybe if the show is still running and perhaps bought by Apple or some large conglomerate. Uh, We can do another follow-up and talk about like water for chocolate. Chris, thank you so much. You are so inspiring to me and I just adore your work. Thanks, James. And good luck with this. This is exciting. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Don't forget to subscribe and review this podcast. And if you like it, share it with your friends or on social media. You can follow me on all social platforms by searching James Whiteside. My book, Center Center, a funny, sexy, sad, almost memoir, is available everywhere in all formats. Front Row uses music from the song A-Flat by Black Violin. Check out the show notes on jamesbwhiteside.com for exclusive video and audio from this podcast. This podcast.